Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning and you'd like to follow along, you can open up to Romans chapter 6. We uh, read the last few verses of chapter 5, and you can look at those as well. But we're going to go into chapter 6 today, Romans chapter 6. And I'm going to read uh, just a few more verses for us this morning as we begin, because we'll be referencing these verses uh, today together. So I'm going to begin by reading from Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Paul says there, well then, should we continue to sin? Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father... Now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you should also consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin no longer, sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. You know, I know as I speak here this morning that some in this room will either themselves feel at this very moment that you are living in some type of habitual sin for which you feel you cannot break free. Or you know someone very close to you who is struggling with some sin, some habitual sin in their life for which they do not believe, genuinely believe that they can be set free. Now, you may be a believer in Christ. And yet, at some point in even a believer's life, they can enter into a time in which they are living a sinful life, a sinful existence. Paul makes this clear here. You are free from the power of sin. You can submit yourself to that power again if you choose to do so. Sin no longer has rights to you, but you can choose to do that. So, You yourself may be one of those people this morning that there has been a time in your life that you genuinely have given your life to Christ. But in some particular area of your life right now, you are submitting yourself again to the power of sin at work upon you and you are miserable for it. Because if you are genuinely a believer in Christ, you are going to be miserable if you are living in any kind of sin. I can assure you of that. Those who can live in habitual sin and not feel misery over it, Do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
do not have the presence of His Holy Spirit within them. If you are a genuine believer in Christ and there is some habitual sin with which you are doing battle, you will be miserable in the midst of it. I assure you of that. But I have good news for you this morning. If that is you or someone you know that you are close to, you need to understand this sermon can be a life-changing experience for you. It, it, it truly can. Because God has set us free from the power of sin. You know, when I was a child, it's funny how God works and uses different people in your life. We had a pastor come to our church who was an interim pastor. Now, you would not think that an interim pastor would have a profound or large impact on your life, but he was at our church for a long time. And he was such a wonderful pastor, we really didn't care if we ever got a, a, a pastor to replace him. And finally, he came to the church and said, listen, boys, I'm leaving at such and such date. So y'all better get busy about finding a pastor. You know, he said, I was only here to be your interim to help you during this time of transition. He was one, though, that had a great impact on a great number of people. And every service, he would close the service on Sunday night with a little chorus that we would sing together. Buell Crouch was the fellow's name. He would lead us to sing. He'd say, only believe, only believe. All things are possible, only be... You remember that course? Some of you remember that course. That's a very simple thing, isn't it? Why would he close the service with those words every Sunday night? Well, it was a church that was going through a very difficult time. It, it, it was going through a, a very trying time. It was a time of great transition. And I believe that one of the things that he wanted us to focus on is the power of Christ and that nothing is impossible with God. And listen, this morning I want to just begin by letting you know that nothing is impossible with God, that we serve a risen Savior, and He is in this world today, and He is living. You ask me how I know He lives, He lives within my heart, but let me tell you something. It's a changed heart. It's a changed heart. It's different, and I am different, and I can testify to the reality of God by the difference and the change that He has made in my life, and that change can be something you experienced this morning. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you do not have a relationship with God, and you're just walking around as one of these people who believe themselves to be spiritual, but you're not connected to any kind of religion or faith particularly, I've got news for you. Jesus is real. Jehovah God is the one God. And the only way to a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. And this morning you can have a relationship with the one true living God through Jesus Christ. And if you know Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus, I want you to understand this this morning. You have a freedom and a new exchange kind of living that you should be experiencing. And if you are not experiencing that this morning, then you need to understand God has something more for you because salvation is more than a prayer and a dunk in the booth over there, right? It's a new life. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But let's just begin. Let's walk through this passage of Scripture beginning in, in Romans 5 and going through these verses we read in Romans 6. Sin is a power at work upon each of us. Sin is not just a thought, word, or deed that we do which is contrary to the will of God. It is also a power at work upon us. Paul makes that abundantly clear in the book of Romans. There is a power of sin that is at work Upon us, sin, and, and this this is this is kind of the, the the bad part and the double whammy, so to speak, upon us because sin is at work upon us, and to make matters worse, we are born with a sin nature. 
Uh, now, having a sin nature means that we are born with an innate or inherent desire to sin, to rebel against God. It's who we are. Uh, David says in, in uh, Psalm 51, he says, as he's writing that song, he says, in sin, my mother conceived me. And he doesn't mean that she conceived him in an act of sin. What he means by that is, is that uh, when he was conceived in that moment of conception, he had inherent to him a sin nature, a propensity to rebel against God. He was inclined to rebel against God. So sin is a power at work on us. And we have a sin nature which desires to cooperate with that power upon us. That's bad. That's a bad combination, isn't it? Where we all start, where we all begin things. Sin is a power at work upon us, but we have a sin nature we're born with, which desires to cooperate with that power upon us. Now, let's just make matters even worse. How about that? Let's just dive right on in real deep before we get real high this morning. Okay. Not only that, Sin's power is compounded by temptation that the law of God elicits within us. See, we were born sinners, and we, we, we have a propensity to sin, and there is a power of sin at work upon us to help us along that way. We didn't know we were sinners, though, and we did not know there was consequence for our sin until God gave us His law. But when you give someone a list of do's and don'ts, what do they want to do? They want to do everything they're not supposed to do. They don't want to do anything they're supposed to do. That's just, people will say, human nature. But in reality, it's a sin nature at work within us. We are born rebels. And the book of Romans says to us in chapter 7, verse 5, when we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law of God aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. But the law isn't all bad, as I said. It also woke us up to the fact we were sinners and helped us to understand and be convicted for our need of salvation. If you look at, at Romans chapter 5, verse 20, as we read a moment ago, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. The law teaches us that something is wrong. The law teaches us that we, yes, are sinners and we have broken God's heart because of our sin. And we are going to be held accountable for that. Now, if the scripture stopped there, we'd all be in trouble, right? Now, go with me on this. I know there's some academic exercise to be had here at the beginning. So don't get lost in this, all right? If the, if the Scripture stopped there, we'd all be in trouble. But we go back and look at what we read moments ago in chapter 5 of Romans 20 and 21. But as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became abundant. So just as sin ruled, that power ruled over people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God brought to us salvation through Jesus Christ by grace, not of works, not anything we could do. The law was powerless to bring us salvation. All it brought to us was conviction and helped us to see that we were sinners accountable before God. It could not make us right before God. So Jesus Christ came. He died on the cross for our sins and brought grace to us so that in him we might be saved. That's wonderful news, isn't it? 
And many of us here this morning would say, we've done that. We've, we've given our life to Christ. And because of that, you're saved. Not of any works of yourself, but because of the grace of God. And your faith in the work of Jesus on the cross, you're saved. Now, there are many people who will be critical of that idea and critical of that theology with this point. They will say, well, in that case, why not just live however you want to live? And God's grace will save you in the end because it doesn't matter your works before God. You are saved because of God's grace given to you in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross and your faith in that. Now, these folks who would say such things were the greatest critics of the Apostle Paul and his, his preaching. They said, all you're doing is preaching a gospel of licentiousness, lawlessness. You are, you are saying people can live however they want to live, and it does not matter because they are not held accountable or they're not judged, that is, by the works of the law. They are judged simply on whether or not they have faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Paul said, how can someone who has genuinely experienced Christ live a life of sin? That's his response in chapter 6. That's what he says here. You see, it begs the question, if we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, why even battle sin? You know, sin is our universal enemy. It is, it is a power at work upon every one of us, and every one of us are born with a sin nature. Every one of us are born rebels. It's something common to all of us. But why fight that battle if you're saved by God's grace through your faith in Him? Why do that? And Paul says here, the reason is because you now are a new creature and you have a love for God and you have the ability to defeat sin in Christ because of your faith in Him. Now, we're going to walk through this for a minute and this is where your life might be changed for somebody this morning. And if not, it'll be something you can give to someone else that will change their life. You see, we... we we are genuinely different because of salvation. As I said a moment ago, salvation is much more than prayer and a dunk in the baptistry. When you come to Christ for salvation, you exchange your old life for a new life. You exchange your old life for a new life. You are truly born again. No, the strongest argument for the gospel of Christ is the personal testimony of those who have been genuinely changed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There was once a fellow by the name of Charles Bradlaugh, and he was an avowed infidel. That is, he was an atheist. He was the Dawkins of his day. Many of you know who Dawkins is. He was a great, greatly known or well-known, I shouldn't say great man. He's a, a well-known atheist who debates Christians all over the world today. But Bradlaugh was an avowed infidel and an atheist who once challenged the Reverend H.P. Hughes to a debate. And the preacher was the head of a rescue mission in London, England. He accepted the challenge on the condition that he could bring 100 men and women who would tell what had happened in their lives since trusting Christ as their Savior. They would be people who once lived in deep sin, some having come from poverty-stricken homes, others from other types of homes, they might have had every excuse in the world for the way they lived beforehand, but they had been changed by Christ. And Hugh said that they would not only tell of their conversion, but would submit to cross-examination. 
by any who doubted their stories. Furthermore, the minister invited his opponent to bring a group of non-believers who could tell how they had been helped by their lack of faith. When the day arrived for the debate, the preacher came accompanied by 100 transformed persons. But Bradlaw never showed up. And the meeting turned into a testimony time in which many sinners who had gathered to hear the scheduled debate were converted. They became Christians and followers of Christ. Some folks don't fully understand or appreciate what coming to Christ is. See, some folks have this idea that when you come to Christ, you're forgiven of your sins and given a new address in eternity. You change your reservation. And while those two things are true, there is much more that goes on when a person genuinely experiences Jesus Christ in conversion. You see, when you come to Christ, what you are doing is you are admitting, you are confessing that what Scripture says is true, what the law of God says is true, that I am a sinner, I am a rebel. I have broken God's heart with my thoughts, words, and deeds that are contrary to His will. When you come to Christ for salvation, you recognize that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and defeat the power of sin in your life. And when you come to Christ, you come to believe that the old person that you were born to be with this sin nature dominated it dominated and ruled by sin dies there with Christ on the cross. And just as Christ rose from the dead, you too are raised to walk a new kind of life in Christ. It's not just about being forgiven of all of the things you've done wrong that are contrary to the will of God. Yes, that part is true. The shed blood of Christ is for the forgiveness of our sins. But it is also to defeat the power of sin in our life. And that's what Paul makes very clear here this morning in Romans 6. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and he said in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, This means anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new life has come. All of this is symbolized in baptism that Paul outlines for us here in, in chapter 6. When we enter into the waters to be baptized... It's symbolic of the old person walking in there, who we were and who we were born to be. When we're placed under the water, it's symbolic of our death and burial. We have died to the old man, the old woman that we were born to be. And when we're raised up out of that water, it is symbolic of the resurrection unto new life to the glory of God. And that's what we're living for now. And sin no longer has dominion over us. We were enslaved by sin. It was the way that we were trying to approach God and please God and be justified before God until grace came. And now we are set free from the bondage of sin and saved by grace, raised to new life with the love of our God. We are now choosing to follow Him, choosing to walk after Him by faith because of our passion for Him and our new life with Him. Let me tell you, if you're struggling with sinful habits right now, I don't care what that habit might be. You know, statistics tell us that nowadays that 
half or more of men in the church are struggling with online pornography. We could just start right there. But there are other habits you may be struggling with, things you don't want anyone in this room to know about. It may have to do with your thought life. It may have to do with, with alcohol. It may have to do with drugs. It may have to do with an illicit affair that you're having. It may have to do with anything else, you know, out there that is contrary to God's law and God's will. Some people try to excuse these things. They say, well, I just have a bad temper. The reality is you're mean. You're hateful. All right? Some people say, well, I, I just struggle... I have a foul mouth. I'm around people that curse all the time. And I just, you know, I, well, that's just an excuse. You're just giving yourself excuse for your sin. Other people say, well, I, you know, I just, you know, I, I eat a little more than I should. Well, you're just a glutton. That's what the Bible says. Okay. Folks say, well, nothing wrong with a little white lie. Well, the Bible says you're a liar, plain and simple. There's no white liar and other kind of liar. There's just a liar and you're a liar. That's what the scriptures say. Some of you guys do your taxes this weekend. If you cheated on your taxes, you're a thief. Plain and simple. That's what Scripture says. Okay? We can excuse it all we want. But if you're out here this morning struggling with habitual sin in your life and struggling to have victory over sin in your life, you need to understand that as a believer in Christ, you have died to the old man, been resurrected to the new man, and sin no longer has dominion or the right to rule over you. That's what Paul says. Since we've been united with him in his death, we've also been raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. That's what verse 6 says in Romans chapter 6. We're no longer slaves to sin. Satan wants us to see ourselves as we once were rather than who we have become. And here's how Satan does it in so many Baptist churches. He wants us to stumble around life believing that we're old sinners awaiting the holy bus to heaven and glorification and perfection. And he wants us to believe that sin while we're on earth still has a power over us. See, we, we, we in so many of our churches, we sit back and we sw- sing about the sweet by and by and some glad morning I'm going to heaven with the idea that then I'll be perfect, then I'll be free from sin, then I'll be, be who I'm supposed to be. And right now, God just overlooks everything because of His grace. But let me tell you, He has forgiven you because of His grace. But as we have faith in His work within us and the Holy Spirit which is now within us, we can live right now holy lives. Now, you might sit there and say this morning, are you preaching sinless perfection. No, I'm not. But what I am saying is that sin is a choice the believer makes. Unfortunately, we many times make poor choices, but we don't have to. Sin is not a power at work on us, and we just the defeated foe just waiting for what he's going to do next to us. Folks say, well, the devil made me do it. The devil can't make you do anything. Okay? And you might sit there and say, I just can't stop. No, you cannot stop, but Christ in you can stop. Because here's the other point that I want to make this morning. What Paul is saying here to us is an impossibility in the flesh. What Paul is saying here this morning to us in verse 12, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires would be an impossibility apart from the first 11 verses that we read in Romans chapter 6. We could never deny sin its right to rule over us if not for our death and resurrection in Christ. But we can because of our death and resurrection in Christ. Make new choices in Jesus. The devil can't make you do anything. 
And you don't have to depend on your willpower and your flesh to do anything because it is Christ at work within you to will and to act according to his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13 says, that you now depend upon so that you might have a right kind of holy life. You know, some people are surprised by the statement I'm going to make, but do you know that Scripture teaches that sin is fun? Do you know that? In the book of Hebrews, it talks about sin being pleasurable for a season. There is a season that it is fun. So you go out of here and you sin. I don't care what that sin is. Whatever it is, you choose to gratify some type of desire in an improper way. And that's what sin is. Listen, sin is a, an improper attempt to gratify yourself. It is, it, 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 these desires that we have are natural desires. The desire for, for sex and sexual fulfillment is a natural desire God gives us. When you go out here and try to sleep with as many people as you can, you're, you're trying to fulfill that desire outside of God's intended purpose, that is marriage between a man and a woman. Okay? So, sin is pleasurable for a season. But there is no life that is better or more pleasurable than to be in right relationship with God, following Him in holiness. That's the truth, guys. When you're enjoying that relationship with God and it is unhindered by habitual sin in your life, you will experience something that will go far beyond anything sin can provide you. And it's possible if we trust Him. We can never add one thing to what Christ has done for us. However, we must have faith to fully experience what He's accomplished on our behalf. And that's what Paul's saying here. Don't offer yourselves as instruments of unrighteousness or sin, but offer the parts of your body to righteousness, holiness, and Christ's way of doing things. And you can do this in Christ because he has defeated the power of sin in your life and over your life and given you a new nature and a new life in him. doesn't mean that that sin nature isn't there. It's just supposed to be dead. It's crucified. And you've been given a new nature that you might live to Christ. We now have a new propensity, Romans 8 says, to obedience. And we now have the possibility to be pleasing to God, Romans 8 says, whereas before we had no possibility whatsoever. Did you know that? We expect so much from these lost people. We expect that they would be pleasing to God, but they can't be pleasing to God. That's what Scripture says. In Christ, we now have the ability to be pleasing to God and follow after Him, and we should. As we look at this passage of Scripture, there are so many different things and so many different applications that we could take here. But I just want to bring it to a conclusion in the next couple of minutes. I want you to listen careful. First of all, let me just say that probably next week I'm going to offend everybody. So you don't want to miss that sermon, right? I'm going to just offend everybody, Paul. Everybody. In reality, it probably won't won't offend you too bad in some points and others it might. But, but let me just say that when we look at the culture in which we live, whether we believe it or not, whether we accept it or not, whether we fully realize it or not, we are influenced by the culture in which we live. And we grow to accept certain things as normalcy, which never should be. We grow complacent in our living and dull in our senses 
and spiritually dull in our convictions so often. And we don't have to live that way. I'll tell you, we are new creations. And the reason that we're so dull and the reason that we are so lifeless today is because in so many ways we have ceased to believe the centrality of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is a new life for old. It's a new life that Christ has given us. I often say either God is real or he's not. If he's not, let's just all stay at home and watch the NFL and eat nachos in the fall, right? Yeah, there, there are a great many places, a great many churches all over the world today that if, if we could definitively discover that God did not exist, they'd still meet next Sunday morning because God didn't have anything to do with what they were doing in the first place. He said, oh, that's not true. It is true. Believe me, it is true. Just go to the Divinity Department at Perkins School of Theology at SMU. God doesn't have much of anything, if anything, to do with that place anymore and hasn't for years. It's, it, it, might as well, it might as well be a social school. That is, it, it, it's, it's a school of social work. Let me tell you something. When we lose sight of the central message of the gospel, we've lost the gospel. Paul said to the Galatians, he said, You foolish Galatians, who has so quickly bewitched you into believing a gospel that is no gospel at all? And we've done the same thing in the United States. We have become a people who focused on so many different things. Let me tell you something. God is real. And people ask me all the time, so what's the vision of your church and what's different about your church and what makes your church something unique and different? Well, we're going to get into that and discover. I'm going to to go at length on some of this stuff, but I need to stop and say something about it right now as we're talking about this because you know what's different? You know what I hope is different? If if I'm called as pastor to cast a vision in that sense, it is that we worship a God who exists. We are not religious atheists. We believe in the transcendent. There is something real happening here. And if it's not, then we are on our face before God, begging God, pleading with God to make it so that we might experience Him. Because we believe He's real. And He's given us a new life in Him. And that old life has died and we have been raised to this new life and we've been given a Holy Spirit that is real and the Holy Spirit of the living God is what we seek to experience. We want to walk with Him and obey Him and know Him better every moment of our life. We want to follow His will every moment of our lives. That's who we are. That's what we're about. And leading other people to know a God who really exists and gives new lives for old. A transcendent experience that is something beyond the world, beyond really our comprehension. That's what it's about. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying something literally happened to you. You were literally put in Christ on the cross. Just as we were literally in Adam when he sinned in the garden and Eve when she sinned in the garden, we have been literally put into Christ that moment we have faith in him for our salvation. And our sin man dies there with him. And we are literally placed in the tomb with Christ. 
We were in his body as much as we were in Adam when he sinned in that moment when Christ was placed in the tomb. And literally we have been resurrected to walk a new life. Why do you have a sin nature when you're conceived in the womb? Because of Adam. And why do you have a new nature and a new life? Because of your faith in Christ. Because the moment you have faith, you are conceived again and born again. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 3. And you are a new person. You are not the same. Don't you believe you're the same person? You didn't just change your eternal address. You became a new person. If you didn't, you need to get saved this morning. Because you haven't experienced the real thing. And we need to be shouting to people out there. And letting them know about the real thing. This is not just a, a, an opinion. This is not just one view of things. It's the only view of things. Christian worldview is not just one worldview. It is the only worldview that is grounded in truth. The reality is, is God created this world. We sinned. Jesus came. He's saved. And he's coming again. And if you don't know Jesus, you're not going to live in eternity with him. That's the truth. And while we live here on this earth, we live. We live a new life. We don't wait for heaven to get that new life. We began eternal life the moment that we entrusted Christ with who we were. I want to close with just one story about a fellow that went to a revival meeting a long time ago. Dwight L. Moody was preaching an evangelistic crusade in Brockton, Massachusetts when a young man stood up to testify about his confidence or lack thereof of his salvation. Now, he was coming to Christ, but he had questions because he knew that he had been a great sinner. Oftentimes, folks that are notorious for their sin have doubts when they come to grace because they just find it too hard to believe, too good to be true. So this man came to this meeting, and when he was testifying about his salvation, he said, I'm not quite sure. Meaning, meaning that he wasn't really certain that God could save him from his sins, change him from who he was. But he didn't stop there. He continued and he said this. He said, I'm not quite sure, but I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey God. That is, I'm going to trust that everything that God has said he's doing for me, he's doing. That word trust means to rely upon and depend upon the character and the power of someone or something. And so he said in that moment, he said, I'm going to rely upon God's character, that he is good and will do what he said he's going to do and is capable of doing what he said he will do. So I'm going to rely right now upon him with my sin problem. I'm going to rely on him right now for who I have been up to this moment and rely on his ability to forgive me of my sins and change me. And then... I'm going to obey him. And, you know, that's how you do it. Christians who just go out and try to obey God in their flesh, they never get it done. All they're doing is falling back on law and trying to engage God in do's and don'ts. But the people who love Christ and trust that Christ has genuinely changed him and has powers that work within them, they have a desire to obey him and an ability to obey him. They just naturally walk in obedience. You say, well, that just seems too hard to be true. That's just the gospel. Go take your argument up with God, not me. So this man said, I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey God. I'm going to do God's will. I'm going to trust and obey. Daniel Towner was a song leader for that meeting. And he was impressed by the young man's testimony, so much so that he wrote down the words and stuck them in his pocket. 
Later, he wrote a friend, John Samus, and in his letter, he told him about the young man's testimony and included the young man's words, I'm not quite sure, but I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey. Samus quickly transformed these words into a hymn chorus, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Soon he had five stanzas to go with the course, and he sent them to Towner, who composed the tune that we still sing today. Many of you sitting here know that hymn. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. Must do his good will. He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. There are always in a crowd this side of Christians, a great many, who are unhappy. And if you're unhappy this morning, there's only one way to be happy, and that is to trust Jesus completely and totally with your life. Not just for your eternity, but for the time you spend here on earth. And to depend fully on what He has said that He has done for you and that He has saved you and given you new life, and put His Holy Spirit within you so that you might then obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So the question this morning is, are you trusting so that you might obey? And if you have yet to trust, even for the first time, then we invite you to do so. But if you have placed your trust for your salvation in Christ, but you have not put your trust in Christ for your life, day-to-day, moment-by-moment, so that you might obey and be happy in Jesus... That unhappiness you feel is the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God upon your life and how the devil's playing games with your soul. And you this morning need to come and just say, Lord, I trust so that I might obey. Would you do that this morning? Would you trust and obey?